1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? This is Willard, and these are his friends, Ben and Socrates. I'm going to have a big surprise tomorrow. Willard takes good care of them. What's that in your pocket? There's something in your pocket. And they will do anything for Willard. Joy, Walter, please, Walter, there's something outside the door. Mr. Martin, I have a number of things to tell you. First, you stole the business from my father. And second, they killed my mother. She died this morning, Willard, at 9.42 in my arms. And third, you're trying to ruin me. You hold up my sales department or even my shipping department one more time. Shut up, Willard. You, you made me hate myself. like myself now. You know, my life has changed now. Two things did it. One was a friend I had named Socrates. And you. Where your nightmares end, Willard begins. should not see alone. 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and one more time I've dragged Mr. Sean Whalen in to talk about another movie. And as I've made it clear in the past, I didn't want to let Sean get, you know, shoehorned into a particular role. Lately, I've been having him do a lot of the Marvel movies, uh, and I decided to go lately if if you've been listening you know i've been going with a lot of the uh nostalgic movies from the 1970s a lot of dystopian movies uh and i had a nostalgic feeling towards this one movie that we're doing today which is willard from 1971 uh and i reached out to sean and said have you ever seen it and i was a little surprised to get the answer no but I also got an enthusiastic uh, response to the effect of that that makes it a great one for me to sit down and watch now. Uh, so I've dragged Sean in, and here he is. How you doing, buddy? I am doing really well, and I'm, I'm glad to be back, and, and particularly glad to talk about this one, because it's a unique opportunity not just to watch something new that I hadn't seen before and talk over it with you, just for a new concept and how you and I chat, but um, especially a movie from the 70s. You know, it's, it's a very different era. So, you know, I grew up in the 70s, so it's great to watch a film from the 70s that I haven't seen. This was actually came out the year I was born. So um, it's an interesting sort of film and, and surprising for me, too, that I missed it. So I'm, I'm, it's going to be fun to talk about this one. Well, we, we before we started recording the episode, we were just talking about ages a little bit. And I was uh, eight when this movie came out. And quite inappropriately in my mind now, I saw it in the movie theater. Uh, <laughs> I saw it with my brother, who would have been just turning 11 at the time. Uh, and I have very nostalgic feelings for this this movie, which probably is, is not something you'd think an eight-year-old should be nostalgic about. This but, film uh, is introducing a Batman villain. I mean, it's like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I didn't think of it that way. Uh, you know, I hadn't seen it in years and years. Uh Watching it now, and I'll go back to, to what I thought when I first saw it at some point, but when watching it now, it really had the feeling to me of a 1970s made-for-TV movie, not so much a theatrical film, and it didn't have nearly as much action as I thought. Uh, but, you know, I'm going to get to my feelings in a moment. I want to be, I want to, I'm curious to hear, you know, somebody who's, you know, already an adult seeing it for the first time. And what, you know, what did you think? It was, it was an interesting film because at first I'm like, what am I watching? <laughs> and then, and then I started getting really into it. And what I loved about this one was a uh, Willard in general, because he's not your traditional lead. You know, in the sense that you, you expect a certain story arc for Willard in this. And the film throws a lot of curveballs and surprises at you that we're going to talk about organically through this. But that was where it really started captivating me because it wasn't doing things that I expected. And I think it's where the film really succeeds is Willard at the end even. And I'm not I don't want to spoil the ending. So we can talk about it when we get closer to talking. But the ending was like very unexpected for me with where yes. this film went, especially yes. 71. I think it was just like everything about this was surprising. I'm a big fan of Hitchcock films and this had certain elements of what I really like about Hitchcock films. Um, and yet it had its own unique flavor 
and I didn't realize there's a sequel, and I want to see the sequel. Yes, so, I, I, I've never seen the sequel, and, and now I'm curious to see it. And I'm also uh, going to throw out at you that I was speaking to somebody recently who said the remake is actually worth seeing with, uh, what's his name? Uh, I can't even think of his name now all of a sudden. Um, well, it was Back to the Future. Um, from uh, and they, they did a remake in 2003, which I haven't seen. Crispin Glover. Crispin Glover. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, I heard that that is actually worthwhile, so I may have to check that out. And, you know, you mentioned Hitchcock. I'm sure if Hitchcock had directed this, it would be a bit more elegant than what we got. What we got felt very gritty. And I'm oh, not, yeah. I, I don't think we would have had quite that gritty feel under Hitchcock. I'm not saying it would have been slick, but, you know, with, with Hitchcock, there would have been more, uh, subtext. Yeah. I think where it struck me as Hitchcock, and I'm agreeing with everything you're saying, where it struck me as Hitchcock, I think the most was there were certain elements of it that ringed with what I liked about the birds, you know, and, and how creepy the birds is. Mm-hmm. So um, this this had elements of that. I'm not saying this was like a mirror of that or, you know, even, but there was certain sequences where I'm like, ooh. <laughs> See, that, that's, that's an interesting thing. See, now, I'm just doing the comparison in my mind as you say it, because I had not thought of that. But now in the birds, he took creatures that were generally, uh, you know, a lot of times we're just oblivious to them, but we're apathetic. You know, we don't really sit there and, and feel fear of birds. If a bird, you know, if you're sitting at a table out, outdoors and a bird lands five feet from you, you know, if it lands on you, you might be grossed out. But if it lands five feet from you, you're just like, oh, look at the bird. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's no level of of discomfort with it whereas if a rat is five feet away from you you're going to feel discomfort you're going to be grossed out you're going to be maybe afraid so now what hitchcock did was he took that creature that you have virtually no fear of and created fear and mm-hmm. what they did in this was they took that cre- the creature that you're you know either grossed out or afraid of and tried to show oh you know look they get along with this guy he's you know he's their friend they they're smart you know like it it was almost the, like a polar opposite in its own way but that comparison is is pretty cool if you think about it just just you bringing it up i thought you know that's got me looking at different levels of this that i hadn't even thought of yeah and it was it was there there was a definite creep factor to this that i thought was was needed uh it it's funny. So watching this through again, I think one of the things that struck me, did you like like this time through? Did you like Willard? Uh, I felt sorry for Willard. Like yes. I, I, it wasn't like I, I think Willard would be my friend, uh, mm-hmm. but but I, I had sympathy for him. Uh, you wanted you wanted him and uh, I don't remember what character what character name was. You wanted him and Sandra Locke to, you know, to. Uh, become a couple and maybe have her, uh, she played Joan, by the way, uh, yeah. maybe have her bring him more into the mainstream because he had been dominated by his mother, which now gives you the comparison to Psycho. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so you, you know, I found myself rooting for him and feeling sorry for him. So if that correlates with liking him, then I'd say yes. If I saw him as somebody who I could sit down and have a beer with, no. I was intrigued by him, but I, I would have a hard time saying I liked him. I think you're in the same boat I'm in. I, I, I don't, I couldn't be, I, it's not that I couldn't be friends with him. I would feel, if like if I worked with him, I'd feel very sorry for him. I'd like to think I would have stood up for him, 
Joan was an interesting one because if Joan was my friend and I saw her kind of getting, you know, really close to them, I'd almost have to have an intervention with Joan and just say, are you sure you know what you're doing? (laughs) (laughs) And I loved her. And and I'm not knocking the way that the story told about their relationship because I get why she was drawn to him and became friends with him. She felt sorry for him, too, and was getting to know him in a unique level. She played a very good role in this because she needs to be likable and in order for that relationship to work because you can't you got to get what was going on with her and i thought the casting on this was very strong considering the unusual nature of this film because i thought it was an unusual movie and i'm saying that as a compliment because i loved that this film didn't do what i expected it to do and the surprises of it made it feel like like I, I was linking it to other films and the like I mentioned the birds is one of them, and I liked that everywhere I thought oh it's going to go here it went here it went a different direction instead it zigged instead of zagged, and that was something that was nice in watching this film I'm like wow for a 1970s film they were doing some pretty heady stuff with this and exploring some real issues like Willard right at the beginning with the way his mother is with him and this and family friends and all of that. I mean, everyone is really condescending to him and I don't know how he could be successful in the environment that not only the work environment, but the home environment, like he did not have any form of support and it was people just kind of beating him down. Um, and and putting a ceiling on him that I don't know how you psychologically get yourself out of. And I, I loved that this film embraced that mm-hmm. because it was something that um, thematically you could see the path that he went down in this and how it hits a point where he cracks and you get why. Yeah. Well, you know, clearly he was dominated by his mother, like I said, and they aren't his friends. They're her friends. Right. Uh, but no, she's like, oh, our friends are here. But, they, you know, clearly they weren't his friends. Uh, so it, it, it strikes me that Joan is probably like the first real friend he ever had. Mm-hmm. And he's got to be, I think he's around 20, somewhere between 25, 27, around there. So, you know, he's he's a, he's a kid by my standards, but he's not a kid. For, you know, he is a man at this point. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, you know, it, it's kind of sad. The mother... I didn't realize until I watched now is the Bride of Frankenstein, Elsa Lanchester. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't realize that's who it was. I I mean, I mean, now I do now that you mentioned the name, but when I was watching it, that wasn't a thing that clicked. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I I had no idea. You know, I remembered the mother in it and everything, but I, until I watched it now and saw the credits and, and saw her name, I was like, oh. You know, that I had no idea that she was in it. And then, you know, the people who play her friends are all recognizable, too. There's J. Pat O'Malley, who I know mostly as a voice actor, but I've seen him in other things. Uh, he does a lot of cartoon, you know, like I think he was in like the, the Aristocats and stuff like that with, you know, doing voice acting. Um, I'm trying to remember, is it Jody Gilbert is the one uh, that I think that's the friend who who's trying to help after the mother dies and she's, you know, just basically trying to take over the overbearing role. And I remember her most clearly from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid uh, when they 
they're trying to get the guy to open up the train and she comes out to yell at, at Paul Newman. And then, uh, they make it sound from the outside, like they're attacking her when they're not. Uh, and the guy opens the door, but it, but it's her. So I recognize her from that. She's mostly recognizable to me also from her voice. Uh, but the, I guess the coup in casting for this movie was getting Ernest Borgnine to play the villain. And he was terrific. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he absolutely that, like, was. This was strong. I mean, he was terrific. Yeah, he, he was totally believable in that role. And, I you know, at the point I had seen this, I only really knew Ernest Borgnine as, uh, whatchamacallit, Mikhail from Mikhail's Navy. So he was, yeah. uh, he was like such a likable guy on that. And then, you know, I saw this and I was like, oh, man, he's scary. Uh, and, and, a, and a creep. He's trying to take over Willard's home. He took stole Willard's father's business. You know, I mean, he's really... A, He's very easy to hate in this movie. And Willard's mother, I love that early on she thinks that, like, she's got an in with him. And Ernest Borgnine is really, like, he sort of did something for Willard, but really was using that as in his, in his way as his own leverage to kind of put his thumb down on Willard. Like, he liked manipulating Willard, I think, as, like, the next level of what he'd done to his father. So it was it, you could clearly see that this was a man who was just continuing to, like, push down that family with, and clearly with other intentions uh, down the road. We got to see what he was going for. You know, I, I think when Willard's mother died, he was like, this is my chance to pounce. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, uh, it was just what a great role, because if you don't hate him, you're not going to like to a certain extent want to see some form of comeuppance on, on him, which is pretty critical in this film because you can't hate, if you hate Willard, the film falls apart, but you've got to be a little uncomfortable with Willard because there's a point where Willard makes a turn. And I think it's where the film's unique in the sense that he starts off as being your sympathetic I don't know if hero is not the right word, but he's the things that he's doing with the rats initially are like pranks more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of rooting for him then because it's like, all right, I, I see where this is going. He's going to be doing this pranking thing. And you don't see how like, wow, does it take a dark turn pretty fast? And you don't want to fall to this point where you hate Willard at that stage. I and don't that's think you do. No, I think no. because Ernest Borgnine is so hateable that you don't you you never feel that Willard isn't justified. Right, and that's that's the part where I think the films is a success because uh, you because of Ernest Borgnine, and that's not taking anything away from Bruce Davison and his role. I think he played a key, unique role that's hard to do in this film, but. You really need the casting. You need Joan to be the person that she is. Sandra Locke was terrific. You need Ernest Borgnine. And you were mentioning Jodie Gilbert before as uh, Charlotte. I think it was Charlotte was her name. And the friend of the mother. She was great because you see her as being this person who's like inherited this duty to like watch over him. And in her own way, she seems to be an opportunist of source, like it's a way for her to be like maybe even a little bit more of a busybody. Mm -hmm. And, and I love that. Like he forces her out of the house and goes to her later on for, and 
she's like, oh, I knew you'd come and apologize and all that. And he's really only there for cash. (laughs) (laughs) And I loved her reaction to that because sometimes in film you don't get an opportunity to tell that kind of expanded storytelling where she's kind of like you saw her face turn in that moment. And I thought that was just brilliant acting where she went from being this like um, bubbly kind of it's sometimes a little bit of not over the top with it to like you'd just given her prunes. And I thought it was just such a great turn. I think when actors are able to make flip the switch and, and do it so effortlessly that it feels like a real happening. She felt that she made me feel that in that moment. And there were some really great scenes like that in this film where the actors really sold the events that were happening in this this wild ride of a film. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, you say it's a wild ride, which I, I agree with you, it is. Uh, but it's a very compact wild ride. It's 95 minutes, so it's, it's it, you know, it's very streamlined and it moves the plot along briskly. So you never feel like you're really wasting your time with anything, even though it doesn't feel rushed when you're watching it either. Like, you know, the, the characters have a chance to breathe and you get a chance to know. And some of them you get to know because they're kind of a little bit stereotypical. Uh, some of the mother's friends, even Ernest Borgnine, to some extent, is, is a little bit of a stereotype. Uh, but, you know, he, he's a mustache twirler. You know, you know what I, I, I the comparison I have in my mind is he's a more gritty, uh, dirty version of Mr. Potter going after George Bailey's father. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, it's you know, he's he's that easy to hate. Uh, and, and as Willard starts developing this relationship with the rats, they even have the scene, you know, his mother's concerned and he's going to drown them in this, I guess, pond that they have in the backyard. And you see they're they're on the center island and they're they're squeaking and getting upset, you know, because they see the water coming up. And then finally he feels sorry for them. So he puts the, the, uh, the plank there so that they can get out. And then they develop this bond. Uh, and it's almost, it's almost like a, you know, like you said, a Batman villain. It's almost like a super heroic thing because it's almost like they, he has a mental connection to them that, you know, I mean, rats can't have the brain to do the things that they're shown to do in this movie, but just the same, uh, you know, it, it I you know I hadn't really considered it, but it just makes your your comparison of the birds feel very on point to me. Yeah, his turn was was really really interesting in this, especially when you know death started to happen in the film, and and you saw him cross that line, and and it it crossed that line in a way where he's like Socrates and Ben like were clearly, especially Socrates like. You, Socrates was like different and I loved that it's hard especially in the 70s to develop animals as characters in the film and they did a really great job of giving you that sympathetic feeling for Socrates and and giving this idea of Ben being very very different like Ben was not following directions and Ben was, you know, at first it seemed like Ben was just mischievous, but the more that they were asked to do things, the more that Ben was like, you're giving Ben an inch and Ben was taking a yard and Ben, Ben was off script. And I really liked how they developed that. And without Socrates there, 
you you saw like Ben do a turn, which was really interesting to feel like these rats had personalities and that they played off each other. And without one, like the truly good rat or the uh, the white rat out of them, it all of a sudden was like Ben was completely unleashed. And I loved that theming of this mm. where in, it was like it was this other story that was going on. And, you know, like the death of Socrates was kind of like it, you know, that that pivotal moment that changed things with Ben as well. And Willard was like trying to be apologetic for it because Willard did nothing. Willard could have stopped that by speaking up. But instead, he like went back into his shell in the moment and let his boss like take over. And it was like a very powerful moment where it was like, oh, you wimp. Why would you go in there? And like, I don't know. I know if, if it was my pet, I'm running into the room going, hey, I'm sorry. I screwed up, but that's my pet. And uh, it was interesting to watch Willard in that moment. And I loved it. I'm not knocking the film for this. That was an example of something that they did that I didn't expect. Him sitting there and letting it happen. Mm-hmm. And not trying to stop it. But like it was ran- true to his personality. Very true, and I loved it because I figured, you know, you, we're used to in films, like, watching that personality evolve, you know, where, like, that person just, it's kind of a, a typical stereotype in films, like, yeah. and, well, and that's going to be it. His relationship with the rats made him step up and say, it didn't. He stayed the same person in that moment, and I thought that was an interesting choice, and I thought it really worked for this film and made me more intrigued by it, that they didn't go the easy route of him, you know, dun da da saving the day. It was him just like wimping out. But it, you know, that, that, it, it makes total sense from a plot point of view because sure. first of all, that wimping out is what the wimping out is what kind of gave him the uh, wherewithal to step it up, uh, and it also gave, you know, as you said, it, it gave it took away the conscience from Ben. Uh, you know, that, that would keep him kind of under control a little bit. And it also gave us, the viewers, uh, a greater reason to dislike the character of Al Martin, which is Ernest Borgnine. So, you know, it, it served purpose on many levels, but I do agree with you that it was not the expected move to have, you know, they, they spent whatever amount of time presenting Socrates as the more appealing one of the two rats. Uh, yeah. which is just almost sounds weird coming out of my mouth in the, those words. But, you know, they, they they took the time to make you like him more, uh, and then they killed him, which is, you know, I guess that's textbook uh, storytelling, but it, it, it definitely caught us off guard, and it definitely gave you the wherewithal to back Willard in his now uh, vendetta. I thought the man and the woman fleeing the house before this and I'm, I'm jumping back a little bit and I apologize I thought that was just such a great bit because I, I connected with it we had a raccoon in the attic recently and you know had to call out a company to, to get the raccoon out but I wasn't running for my house I get it though if you've got rats at the door that are chewing through it yeah, yeah <laughs> like, well, there's, a, there's a certain down. point where you're not going to stay <laughs> right right but using that as a plot point to, to steal the cash, I knew that's what they were going for. I thought it was intriguing how he did it because 
he did a really great job of like, okay, chew at the door, then like hide off to the side when she opens up, so that way they don't know what's going on. I loved how they were like ninja like with what they were doing. <laughs> yes. Like, it was, I thought that was just such a great bit where he had like gained this like strong relationship with the rats where they were able to like do that at that kind of level. It was uh, it was an interesting sort of uh, way to develop that. And it made it, it made it a lot of fun for me. I agree. I agree. And, and he did it, you know, in that instance without ever actually causing physical harm to the people, uh, you know. So, again, I, I didn't feel. That, that you that he went over the line you know you, you you yes you knew that he was doing something that he shouldn't be doing but you kind of sympathized with him and you, and you, you know you did, still didn't have that moment where you felt like okay now he's gone too far and and then when he finally did you know cross that line it was once again against al martin who you know had just ruined his life intentionally uh and and you know then killed his best friend I do think they need to make a third movie, The Adventures of Chloe the Cat, because I am fascinated by what happened to that cat. <laughs> yeah, that, that was just like an interesting little thing, you know, when she buys him the cat and you're like, oh, no, this can't end well. <laughs> <laughs> just handed it off. And that's one guess another point where I'm like, what an interesting film, because, again, Willard's supposed to be our guy we're following in this whole thing. And now you, you there's points in time where they make Willard it's it's like he does things that are blatantly unlikable, like handing off a cat. Like you get why because of the relationship with the rats. But this is still like this cute cat that like all of a sudden now is being handed off to the stranger that will never know this cat's fate. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I love cats. Like, what did he do that? I, I get why. <laughs> but again, another situation where he could have just told Joan, Joan. I mean, there was every opportunity there to go, Joan, you know, I'm not into cats. I mean, he could have done like 10 gazillion different excuses. Instead, it was let let's let the cat claw at the bag that I'm keeping the rats in and then eventually hand off the cat to a stranger. I thought that was just such a great way to handle it because it felt more human in a strange way because, you know, we there's not one path for people. Right. So. The idea that they were exploring some of the other intricacies of what it means to be a human being, I thought was really great here. I'm like, well, okay, yes, we all know people that would do dumb things like that. And I love that it was exploring the multi many facets of humanity in this film. Agreed, agreed. It's, you know, it, it, again, you know, 95 minutes and they really gave you you know, a good feeling for it. And they could also entertain an eight year old. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's all good as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I remember, you know, the big thing, you know, it was almost like a catchphrase at the time between with me and my friends was, you know, when he finally goes, you know, and confronts Ernest Borgnine and he gives out, you know, he gives the, the uh, emphatic tear him up. Everybody was like, Ooh, and they, you know, everybody loved it. I can't, I can only tell you. <laughs> So this was something like so when you were a kid, this was something that was like a popular movie amongst your friends. Yes. Yes. It's fascinating to me because, I mean, our age difference isn't that great. The fact that I, I, I missed this film because I didn't when you threw it out there, I'm like, I don't even know what that is, which is unusual for me. 
And I I was looking at it and I saw the you know the, the just the quick little synopsis of it and I'm like oh I've never seen this let's do that I was thrilled that you asked me to do this one and it was fun to watch this now and think back to like I really watched it from a 2022 sensibility and and really found my at first I, I again like my initial reaction was like what am I watching and then found myself adoring it all the way like I, I couldn't tear myself away from it now did you did you uh, watch this alone was, or did your wife watch it with you I watched it alone and and I deliberately watched it alone because of the fact that um I just wanted to wrap my head around the experience um she and I are watching a lot of um like Halloween like horror movies and things like that right now and i'm gonna suggest this one to her to watch it together this month because it seems you know this is the time where we kind of watch this right uh but i think i think she she'll dig it it's uh it's it's definitely it's got a creep factor to it yeah which which is exactly why my wife wouldn't like it (laughs) she's she's not definitely not a horror movie person so i was just curious uh you know my wife typically isn't this month. She'll like watch horror movies and like, that'll be like the, then at the end of the, it'll be like a mic drop at the end of this month. <laughs> and I don't know, this will be one we'll have to show her the trailer and see if, you know, she, it's something she wants to watch or not. Um, but, uh, that this would be one to see. So now the, another interesting thing in this is, okay, now Willard's gotten to the point where he's, you know, he's basically asserted his, uh, freedom, manhood, uh, power, whatever, whatever you want to call it. He, you know, he, he's taking care of the situation. He, he can be in charge and yet he has, I guess, the redemptive aspect of that. He realizes this is going too far and he can't let this go on anymore. And right attempts to and you know spoilers for anybody if, if anybody's listened this far and plans to uh you know plans to watch this you might want to pause it now uh watch the movie and then uh, come back to us because spoilers uh but you know he he basically goes to drown all the rats which was what he was originally doing and it, it always caught me a little off guard because it looks like he succeeds in doing so and yet, you know, they come back to uh, to get their revenge on him. Well, and he abandons them, like, because they're evidence now. And he doesn't want any of that linking to him as well, which was, I mean, there's a lot of, everything you're saying is correct. And there's another avenue of, like, now, like, oh, like if people come to the house and they see all these rats, like, I'm going to be a suspect because people would know that, like, Al and I didn't get along. Then they come here and see all these rats. It's almost like the evidence is at his home. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he, he's painted himself into quite a corner with the choices that he made. And it was it was really interesting to see him, like, take a turn. I, I, I do not want to be, like, buddies with Willard because <laughs> I'm pretty sure if I, like, do too much for him, at some point in time you're going to turn on me. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it, it is almost a, a redemptive turn a little bit. But, you know, I mean, it could be self-survival, uh, you know, as you say. So, you know, maybe I'm I maybe I'm rooting for him a little too much, maybe. 
No, I think there's I think you're right. I think there's layers to Willard. I think it's one of the things I like about the characters. There's complexity to them. So I think there's a redemption piece to it. And I think Joan is part of that, you know, where in the sense that um, I, I think we both agree completely that he sh- she's kind of his shining beacon. And I think if he'd had more time with her, maybe Al would still be alive. Um just in the sense that I think he maybe he and Joan would have like gone off together before that, you know, before it got to that point and, and left together or had a strong enough relationship that he would have confided in her. Right. Um, never got to that point. Um, if cir- circumstances and events, actually Al's own poor choices uh, led to him never having that opportunity. And I think him being a tragic story. Um, in this whole thing, um, it's so this may be where we do veer off a little bit. And I, in a way, I think that's interesting to interpret the film. Did you feel sympathy for Willard at the end or feel like Ben kind of like had a point? <laughs> well, I, I, I und- It's kind of weird to say it this way, but I, I kind of I mean, understood where Ben was coming from. Uh but I also, I yeah, I did feel sympathy for Willard at that point. I, I, you know, I felt he was, you know, he was a tragic hero in this movie. Um, yeah. So, you know, uh, it, it's it's interesting. You know, you you felt more like he had it coming at that point that Ben was justified. It's I felt he was a tragic. I don't. It's tough. There's points in time where like. I feel like he's supposed to be the hero of the story, and I don't mean this in a way as a criticism of the film, it's more of what I like about it. I, I feel like he's the lead, but never really feels like the hero to me in this story. I feel like he's a victim of his world and we get to really see how others can bring somebody down who has potential. Like I see the potential in Willard. And that's one of the things that I will say I did like about him is I see that this could have been a guy who could have gone somewhere, could have done something, could have had a relationship, could have advanced in a company. But forces were at work against him that didn't allow for that. And at the end, it wasn't that I was rooting for Ben. Um, and it's strange to start personifying Ben, but I think it's hard not to because that's kind of the place Willard put us in with Ben. Mm-hmm. And I felt like Ben at the end was kind of like, wait a minute, you're trying to poison us now? You're trying to drown us now? And I get why Ben went after him. He's like, enough's enough, buddy. Because Willard was shouting at the end, I was good to you, Ben. And it's kind of like, well, yeah. He also tried to kill him. (laughs) Yeah, what about like this laundry list of things that you tried to do to us? It's like, no, I think we're kind of done with you, buddy. Mic drop. And I, I thought it was just, that was the ending I did not expect. And I love that the film did that because I get why. Like, there's a logic to this movie that I think is something that it, it took a unique approach. But the logic to the film is something that really won me over on it right. in an interesting way where it was like, I understand this even though I wish – like, you root for it to go differently but yet understand completely why it didn't. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I, I think 
I got, I got to give credit where it's due. And, and, you know, I had no idea who Bruce Davison was back in 1971. He wasn't, you know, a name actor. And, you know, I was eight, so I don't know how many name actors I actually knew at that point anyway. But I really didn't become aware of him until probably about 20 years later. Uh, now I've seen him in so many things. Uh, you know, he's got, first of all, I think he's got a really cool voice. Uh, which he really had, it came to him in his older years. Like it doesn't really stand out in this movie, but like when you see him in the first X-Men movie, when you see him uh, on Seinfeld, when you see him in, I, I just recently saw him in episodes of the practice from the early two thousands. Uh, you know, he, he's got a very, very cool voice. He's got kind of a unique presence about him. Uh, you know, he, he he's, there's something about him that makes you feel familiar, and yet you also feel like there's stuff going on in his head that you can't quite grasp. So I, I, I just really feel like he's a much better actor than uh, than people realize. I know he was nominated for an Academy Award uh, for the movie Longtime Companion, which was, I believe, in the early 80s. Uh, but, you know, I, I really... You know, watching this, knowing who he is when he's older, kind of made me look at him differently now than I would have if he was just the unknown actor that I thought starred in this movie. Well, really struck me in this one. Um, I knew Sandra Locke from a lot of Clint Eastwood movies, mm-hmm. and and a little later in her career, I I did a double take. I'm like, that really is Sandra Locke. And I mean, but she was so much younger than I had seen her in a lot of the movies that I grew up with. Um, it was, she played a great role. Now she had previously, and I was unaware of this. She had previously, uh, been nominated for an Academy award, uh, for the movie. I think I'm pretty sure it's for the movie. The heart is a lonely hunter, Mm -hmm. uh, which was in 1967. So she was an Academy award nominee. Uh, at the point when this came out, which I had no idea, honestly. I get why. You know, just um, just a great actress. I mean, and just really, this this film just I think added to that for me. And I, I see, I I, I kind of uh, pigeonholed her a little bit as oh, she gets acting parts because she's Clint Eastwood's girlfriend. You know, I I didn't really give her the credit for being the actress that she is at least in, in the years when she was with Clint Eastwood, uh, when she was in the gauntlet, when she was in, uh, what you call it? Outlaw Josie Wales. Uh, I'm trying to think. I think she was also in, uh, everything, uh, every which way, but loose. I think she was in, uh, so, yeah, I mean, she, she, was she in, uh, the, 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 not the Deadpool sudden impact. Was that her? Yeah. She played the, the female lead in that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the one where um, it was another film where I think because it was such a revenge story for her, mm-hmm. um, I thought she did a really good job in that one. Um, it's like which and kind of broke out from what had become like a Clint Eastwood movie trend for her. I thought Sudden Impact was like a, a little bit of a different play for her. Right. Um, it's 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 interesting to watch this film and look look at the at the diverse cast of people that you know <laughs> that were in this film yes i mean it really was a a pretty rich cast in the people that were there and uh, that part really struck me yeah i, I agree and, and you know it, it's it's more of a rich cast in hindsight uh 
it's you know it's people who became more famous later on uh people who were famous earlier like elsa lanchester and then i i think at the time this came out the only big name who was currently a big name would have been ernest borgnine and uh i think this is you know right around the time when he did the poseidon adventure too uh which is a movie i loved him in and it's another movie i loved actually when i had seen it um but i think he he was the only big name in this one So I guess I guess we, we you know we're, we're getting to the point now, Sean, where I'm going to ask you the big question: mm-hmm. Is it yours? I boy, I struggled with where to put this film, and the reason being, I, I started like thinking to myself, like usually one of the things that goes into my rating is rewatchability of the film, and. I really enjoyed this film. I don't see myself watching it over and over again, but I don't know that in this film, I don't know that that's a fair comparison because I thought the story was compelling. I will watch it again. Um, I, but I, I don't see this as being one, like I'm going to watch like 10 or 20 times or anything like that. It's one of those that a little bit of space between it. I'll want to watch it again because I felt like the plot and the intricacies of it, it's not that kind of film. You know, it's not meant to be a rewatch over and over again. Um, I, I'm going to say, like, I, I'm going to put it between Jaws 2 and 3, but I'm leaning more towards 2 uh, just because of how much uh, I enjoyed it. I, I almost say, like, uh, I don't know if we'd call it 2.5 in between 2 and 3. I'm not comfortable giving it a Jaws 3 because I feel like there's a lot to this film that makes it cool. Um, I, I would say Jaws... 2.5 is where I would put this one. All right, I'm not too far off from you. Uh, watching it now, I kind of went into it with the thought process that, yeah, I'm filled with nostalgia, uh, but this movie's going to let me down. Uh, it didn't let me down. I enjoyed it very much. And mm-hmm. I have a greater appreciation for it, to be honest with you, after speaking about it with you. Discussing it has, has made me feel even stronger about it, that there's more subtext to it than I had even mm-hmm. realized watching it until we started to dissect it a little bit. Uh, so I'm, I'm very comfortable putting it as a Jaws 2. Uh, I'm not going to put it as a high Jaws 2, but I'm not going to also put it as a low. I'm going to put it, you know, probably just below the middle of Jaws 2. Uh, you know, not, not one that absolutely is in there for exactly the reason you said. I don't know that it's a movie that you'd say, oh, this is a movie I'm going to watch once a year or something like that. You know, this will this will be my Christmas morning movie. Uh, you know, <laughs> it doesn't doesn't have that kind of feel to it. But having seen it and knowing where the plot was going to go, I didn't have any problem sitting through it a second time. So, uh, and I could probably watch it a third time without it really being a problem either. So I, I, I'm very comfortable putting it as, as a, you know, in the Jaws 2 ranking. Uh, and, and I don't think that's just looking at it with nostalgia eyes. Uh, you know, as, as always, you have to have a certain, uh, in, you know, certain uh, feeling to go towards certain movies. If, if movies, you know, if, if like I said at one point, uh, you know, it kind of had a little bit of a TV movie feel to it. And if that would bother you, then maybe it's not for you. It's also a little creepy. So if that would bother you, it's not for you. But if you're not going to be creeped out and if the, you know, the TV movie feel doesn't bother you, I think, you know, it's, it's a pretty rich story with characters that feel well-developed and, uh, and a story that, that that's enjoyable to go through. So I would recommend it to anybody who, 
you know, that who that would appeal to. Now that said, I want I, I want to sit down and watch Ben, and I want to sit down and watch the uh, remake too. I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of, of where you go in a sequel to this. Yeah, I, I so which I think that's the sign of the victory of this film is I liked it enough that I want to see the sequel. I I would watch it again, and I do want to see the remake. Uh, it, it it checked the boxes on all of those things. Whereas if I didn't like the movie. I would have been like, I'm glad we got to talk about this. I'm glad we did this, but I don't have any urge to continue on with it. I do. I want to see Ben. I like, I saw out afterwards. I'm like, oh, I want to know a little bit more about this film. And I saw there was a sequel. I'm like, okay, I'm in on that. And, and the remake was totally surprised me because I didn't hear about it when the remake came out. Like in 2003, it was, did you know there was a remake? Yeah, I did. Okay. But, but I, honestly, I never really had the, uh, the feeling that oh I need to see that <laughs> yeah so it'll, yeah I don't know how the remake you know in 2003 because I like Crispin Glover a great deal I don't know how I missed that he made a movie called Willard <laughs> yeah well it's again it's one we're gonna have to seek out I'm pretty sure that's streaming uh, on one of the big services I'm not sure about Ben We'll have to find that somewhere. I might have to look at the library and see if they have it for me. Uh, but I'm going to check it out. In the meanwhile, before we sign off, I, as always, want to give you a moment to uh, to, to peddle your wares. Well, I do a weekly podcast called Raging Bullets. It's a DC Comics uh, fan podcast. We uh, talk about we usually talk about uh, two books a week and, and DC news on every episode. And uh, we do like kind of what you and I do here. We do some in-depth discussions, you know, like cover to cover about what's going on in the books, give our own uh, thoughts and feelings and impressions of it. And uh, I appreciate you having me on to uh, have a chance to talk about uh, films because uh, this this was this was a treat i really enjoyed talking about something i hadn't seen before and oh. i'm glad we did that and i and i really enjoy our chances to talk too and i'm glad that we we do this and i'm i'm also happy to subvert expectations and pick a movie that isn't typical from what we've done already so who knows who knows what we're going to do next time but i'm pretty confident there will be a next time I, I'm 100% in, so. All right. Thanks again, Sean. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Had an agent named Mike Belson who said, get over to get over to Paramount right away. You know the Star Trek building there? Well, there's a guy named Danny Mann and Mort Briskin, and they're looking to cast this movie about rats. And here's a script, so just get over there and hurry up. So I went over and I, I started screening, you know, I auditioned with the tear them up scene. And they said, well, this is really good, you know, come with us. So they took me out to Burbank and they there's this squirrely little guy there and they, they said, okay, go in the, take him into the garage. So I went into the garage and the guy had 600 rats in there, and he took this big one, put it on my shoulder, and said, how do you think you can get along with your co-star? And it started licking my ear, and I just sort of smiled like that. He said, okay, kid, you got the part. You, your co-star likes you. So Ben had the final word. Who are you? Hi. What are you doing here? <laughs> You're bright. Yeah. I'm gonna call you, uh, 
been.